Today, though, James 1, okay? And before we jump into James 1, uh, starting in verse 19, I want to just tell you a story of what I got to do two different summers when I was in college. I got to go overseas to China, okay? I got to go overseas to China for two whole summers. Uh, I was living in an apartment with a group of friends, and I was sharing the gospel, uh, gathering people into these Bible studies, okay? We were doing missions work. Uh, but towards the end of the summer, actually one of like the, the craziest, like funnest moments each year, which we went to this massive uh, mall kind of thing in Shanghai, and it was like seven stories tall. And it was amazing, okay? You could get literally anything you wanted here, and everything was unbelievably cheap, okay? You could get Nikes, you could get Jordans, you could get an iPhone, you could get whatever you wanted. It was all incredibly cheap. It cost you next to nothing because it was all fake, right? This is a fake market. Everything in this entire mall, top to bottom, was not real. It was fake, okay? Now, some of the stuff was like obviously fake, right? Like Nike is spelled wrong, and so you're like, I am pretty sure those aren't real Nikes, right? But sometimes things were like pretty legit, like a really good fake, like something that looked so close that you were like, is this real or is it not? You couldn't quite tell. And the rumor this day while we were there was that there was a booth that had real, meaning not fake, but actual authentic Beats headphones. Okay, this is like when Beats were like all the rage. Everyone was talking about them. Everyone was buying them. And apparently there was some person who had an inside line or they had like some access to the distribution company and they had access to the real thing. And so we eventually found this guy. We went to his booth and we're listening to these headphones and they sounded super good. They sounded super legit. You felt them. They felt real. And we were like, these are real. Great bass, great treble. They felt quality. And so we all bought them, okay? We all bought them. We're listening to them. And these became my headphones for like a year and a half. And eventually, one of my friends went to Best Buy and bought the exact same headphones, same model, same everything. And he bought them and he brought them back. And I was like, you know what? I have these headphones and I, I paid like one-tenth or like one-one-hundredth of what you paid for yours. And so I just want to put them in my ears and like prove to myself that they are indeed the same headphones because they felt the same, they looked the same, and I put them in to see if they sounded the same. They didn't at all, okay? <laughs> like, they did not sound the same at all. To be totally honest with you, the headphones I had convinced myself sounded amazing. They sounded like crap. Compared to the real ones, it sounded like someone was using one of those little kids' microphones that, like, reverberates, right? That's what my headphones sounded like compared to the real thing. Okay, here's, here's the point. I had deceived myself. I had deceived myself into thinking I had a real pair of Beats headphones. I had deceived myself into thinking that Dr. Dre himself had helped design the drivers in these things. He didn't, okay? The reason they were so cheap, the reason they cost me next to nothing was because they were counterfeit. They cost me next to nothing because they weren't real. And this is what the end of James 1 is about. Not counterfeit headphones, but counterfeit Christianity. A way of receiving the Word of God, a way of even following Jesus that doesn't cost you anything because it's counterfeit. It's not real. He's talking about a way of following the crucified Messiah where you never actually have to pick up your own cross and follow him. 
He's talking about a way of being justified without ever actually being sanctified. He's talking about a way of being declared righteous by the grace of Jesus without ever actually being made righteous by Him. It's a way of following Jesus as Savior without having to deal with the messiness of following Him as Lord. And James says there's a way of doing Christianity that deceives people into thinking they are followers of Jesus when they're not. When I found out that my headphones were fake, when I found out that they weren't the real thing, I threw them away. I threw them away. Knowing they're fake, I didn't want them anymore. And actually, having now heard the real thing, I couldn't not hear how bad and how fake they sounded all the time. So I just ended up throwing them away. Twelve years ago, I threw my version of Christianity away. Because like my headphones, it was fake. It was a counterfeit. I was a hearer of the Word but I wasn't a doer. I had a kind of faith in Jesus, but it was the kind of faith that James is going to talk about in next chapter, the kind of faith that doesn't actually save you. I had all the intellectual knowledge of Christianity, and I actually intellectually and even truthfully in my mind assented to all the facts of the gospel. I had a kind of relationship with Jesus, but it wasn't the kind that changes your life. I was the exact person that James is talking about, the exact person the Spirit of God through James is teaching us about. And while it was hard and while it was painful to hear Jesus and James together convince me I wasn't really following Jesus, but I had been deceiving myself. It was 12 years ago that these words in James, along with other passages in the Bible that say the same thing, saved my life. Because these words convinced me to throw away what was a false version of Christianity and actually take my first steps as a real, true, authentic follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. And I've been praying this week and this morning, that some of you who are hearing this, that these words might save your life as well. This is how he starts. Chapter 1, verse 19, okay? Ready to jump in this with me? All right. Chapter 1, verse 19, he says this, know this, my beloved brothers. He says, let everyone be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, James is using this as like a transition into the main topic he's going to talk about in this section. And the way that this book of James works is basically he will like bring up this really quick kind of punchy teaching. He'll be like, hey, be be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And he'll kind of bring this up, but he uses it basically as an intro for another section later in James where he's going to cover this in depth. And so actually in a few weeks, we're going to see this in James 3, where he's going to talk about the tongue and what it does, okay? But I want to just let this set up what he is about to say. So we're going to cover this more in detail later, but this is what he says as a transition. He says, dearly beloved brothers, 
Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, it is interesting to note that he is describing essentially the opposite of the natural way we are. The general pattern of humanity is to do the opposite of this, right? It is to be very quick to speak, very slow to listen, and to have this kind of hot, quick, burning anger that isn't directed at anything in particular, but just kind of burns up whatever and whoever is around it. This is my natural tendency. I don't know about you, but this is my natural tendency. I tend to speak quickly and have a really difficult time listening. I'm fast to think that I understand a situation, and I am fast to get angry when I feel like I have felt injustice or I see injustice out there. And James says something really interesting. He says, don't do this. He doesn't say we should only listen or we should never speak or never get angry. He doesn't say that. No, but he says the reason you need to spend more time listening than speaking, the reason that you, Christian, need to be slow to anger is because there's something in us, there is something about us that even as Christians makes it hard for our anger, the anger of man, to produce the righteousness of God. And this is what transitions him into what he's going to say next. Look at the next verse, verse 21. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, I want to point out just a few things here, okay, that they're actually really obvious, but they're obvious enough that we might actually miss them. And if we miss them, we are really going to understand what James is saying, okay? And so, I want to kind of walk us through this text, just like kind of almost like point by point, okay? First thing I want us to notice who is James talking to? When he talks about this filthiness, rampant wickedness, who is he talking to? He's talking to Christians, right? He starts this off, dearly beloved brothers. He's talking to Christians, okay? Second thing, what is it that he thinks is still in their life that needs to be dealt with and put away? Filthiness and rampant wickedness. Okay, that should kind of pause, make us pause for a second, right? Because aren't these the kind of things, isn't, this is our description of our sin. Isn't this something that Jesus has already dealt with on the cross? Weren't those things put away by him already? And also, why is this description so brutal? Rampant wickedness. Welcome to church. Put away all your filthiness and rampant wickedness. Why is it so strong and so blatant and so brutal? But then the third thing, what is his solution? What does he want us to do? If he were going to put this off, what are we supposed to put on? And he says, receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, this should also cause us to stop in our tracks a little bit, because isn't this what you do to become a Christian? You receive the word, right? You, you receive Jesus. God presents that Jesus is Savior and sacrifice, and you accept him. You, you believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You put your faith in him. Why is he telling Christians that they need to still receive the word of God? Fourth thing, what does he say receiving this word is able to do in their lives? He says it is able to save their souls. 
Okay, so all of that, kind of take that and put it in your pocket because we're going to need it later, okay? But I want it, all of that is leading up to verse 22, okay? This is the central verse for the section and it is actually probably the central verse for the whole book because everything that he's going to say after this, including even the end lines, are all kind of, they flow out of this idea. Verse 22, he's saying, receive the word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Here's a question that every one of us should be asking this morning, okay? How do we interact with this book? How do we deal with it? How do we interact with it? Because James is talking about a way of dealing with this word and dealing with the one who wrote it that deceives people into thinking they have received it. They've received the message and they've received the one who spoke the message when they haven't. And what James is teaching us is actually incredibly simple. Okay, it's incredibly simple. James introduces himself to us as what? The very beginning of this letter. A servant of Christ Jesus. What James is saying is he's saying being a servant of Jesus actually involves doing what the master says. To be a servant that doesn't do what he hears the master say is a way of deceiving yourself about who you are. This seems really obvious, doesn't it? It's like if you're a servant who doesn't do what the master says, by that definition, you are not the servant. They does not have an authoritative voice in your life. But this is what is tricky, okay? Because on its face, what James is saying is incredibly obvious. But it's not obvious to the person James is talking about. It's not obvious to the people who are actually doing this because they have deceived themselves. They're deceived, right? Like they don't see clearly what is happening. And so there's this question. Maybe it clears it up for us, okay? Is there something that Jesus has said Something. It doesn't matter what it is. Just something that he has said or some part of his teaching that you have decided you don't actually need to obey. Is there something in here that you think, well, I don't actually need to obey that? Or maybe you think, well, because of the grace of Jesus, I don't actually have to live a life of pursuit of full obedience. Maybe you're the kind of person that says something like this. Maybe you say like, well, I'm a big fan of Jesus' words on social justice, and I'm a huge fan of like fighting for the poor or the oppressed, but I don't really think I need to obey his words on how he wants me to express myself sexually. Or maybe you say, I think Jesus has some really helpful things to say about love and forgiveness, but his words don't direct the way I spend the money in my bank account. Or maybe we say something like this, maybe even this is a little closer to home. We say something like, I try to do some or even most of the things that Jesus says to do, but I recognize that I am a sinner and I am saved by grace and not what I do, and I know that Jesus doesn't expect me to be perfect. There's this interesting thing that I see happening with many people in the church, many people in the college ministries that we're, we're part of, many people that I have met who come to Jesus, they approach Jesus. And what some people want to do is they want to receive the parts of Jesus they like while simultaneously setting aside the parts of him they don't like. 
right? And what happens when we do this is what ends up happening is we take Jesus, we take like the whole real Jesus, and we kind of cut him in half, right? And we see the Savior part of Jesus, and we go, I really want that, but the Lord part of Jesus we kind of get rid of. And so the Savior part of Jesus that saves us from our sins, that gives us grace, that gives us this unconditional love, we say, yes, I want that Jesus. But then there's the Lord side of Jesus that demands obedience, that calls us to holiness, that actually tells his followers how they now must live. This is what it means to be someone's Lord. They have authority over you. And so what happens is some people, they take Jesus and they cut him in half. And when we say we have received Christ, what we really mean is we have received half of him. We receive forgiveness. We receive grace. We believe in his sacrifice for our sins. But we do not let him become the Lord of our life because we've retained that position and that title for ourselves. Please, hear me say this. Jesus is not Savior Jesus. He is, in reality, Lord and Savior Jesus. And He either comes into your life as the fullness of who He is, or you deceive yourself. He will not come into your life cut in half with only part of him. That's not how following Jesus works. When we deceive ourselves, we think that we can receive half of him while rejecting the other. We deceive ourselves because we convince ourselves that we are truly following Christ. Listen to me, listen to me, please. We deceive ourselves because we convince ourselves that we are truly following Christ, but instead what we have done Instead of following Christ and letting Him form us in our image, instead what we have done is we have created a Christ in our image who thinks like we think and who lives like we live. And we have chosen to follow that counterfeit Christ who is not the real Christ, but He's one of our own making. A counterfeit Christ who gives us grace and gives us suggestions, but makes no demands on our life. Following this Christ costs us next to nothing, okay? It costs us next to nothing to follow this fake Christ, not because He already paid everything for us on the cross, but following this Christ costs us next to nothing because He is not real. We've made Him up, and we are deceived. Twelve years ago, I didn't just throw away my version of Christianity, but I actually had to throw away the counterfeit Christ that I had been following. James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And he actually explains why. He actually gives an illustration. We don't have to think of one. He gives us one, okay? Verse 23. This is what he says. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and he's not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and then he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, 
the law of liberty, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Okay, now I want to just let us stop and think for a minute about this illustration, okay? Someone who is a hearer of the word only, that's what he's talking about. Someone who's a hearer only, they're not a doer. He says that they are not someone who does nothing with the word at all. Right? This would make it really clear and really obvious for us, right? Like you're the person that you see the mirror and you just kind of walk by. You don't even take a glance, right? Maybe you don't even look in the mirror at all. Like you have nothing to do with this book whatsoever. That's not what he's talking about. No, this is a description of someone who actually seems to be taking it fairly seriously. They are looking intently at their face in a mirror. Time, energy, focus. And it says that the Word of God is like a mirror. A Word of God is like a mirror that shows us when we look into it, our natural face, okay? Now, this doesn't just mean like what happens when we look into a mirror, right, where we see like, okay, I've got some toothpaste still here I need to get rid of, right? I got this zit I need to take care of. No, that's like your face. The Hebrew idea of face is way deeper than that. It's like the deep part of who you are. It's like this, to see your face is to see the real you, And so he's saying that that's what the Bible does. When we look into the Bible, it reveals to us our true selves, a picture of who we really are. And this is so interesting because what a mirror does is a mirror shows you something that you can't know unless it's revealed about you, right? Like this happens all the time. Like you get up from a meeting or something, you go look in the mirror and you're like, oh my gosh, like that's what my face looked like. Like I had this little piece of chocolate from my son, right, that's just been on my face all day. And you're like, why did I just go through like a whole morning of Zoom meetings with that on my face, right? Because what the mirror does is the mirror reveals something about you that you can't just know unless it's revealed. That's what the mirror is doing. It's revealing something about you. And James is saying that the people who hear the word and don't do it, they are like people who look intently at their face. They look intently at it. And then immediately as they leave, they forget what they were like. Okay, first of all, James is hilarious. Like, think about how funny that picture is. Like, it's someone who, like, looks at their face in the mirror, and it's like they have yesterday's toothpaste all over their lips, and, like, they have, like, a mosquito that's just, like, encrusted with blood on the side that someone smacked their face the other day. And, like, they've got chocolate on their face that may or may not be chocolate because you have a one and a half year old and you change diapers a lot, right? It's like you're looking at your face in the mirror and you see it and you're like intensely, you're like, oh my gosh, what? Oh, look at this, this is horrible. And then you stand back and you go, okay, and you just go on with your day. Like you do nothing, you do nothing to fix the problem. You just see it, you look intently at it, and then you go away. And James' point, listen, understand what he's saying is this. What's implicit, what what James is saying is that there is something about our true selves. There's something about our natural selves, the deep parts of who we are, that when we see it, it demands an action-oriented response. James' point, his warning that rings in our ears as we read this passage, is that if we are not actually doers of the Word, if the Word does not have some kind of activating and authoritative power in our lives such that for the Word of God to say it, it necessitates a response for us to do it, 
He's saying if that is not our relationship with Jesus and his word, then we are deceived. And our reception of the word is actually rejection. And our discipleship of Christ is a counterfeit discipleship. Put even simpler, to be a hearer of the word and not a doer is a way of living that deceives someone into believing they are receiving salvation for their souls while they are actively rejecting the very salvation they are trying to claim. Look, I'll, I'll say that again. To be a hearer of a word and not a doer is a way of deceiving oneself into believing that they are receiving salvation for their souls while they are actively rejecting the very salvation they are trying to claim, okay? Now, here's what I mean by this. The reason that James says that people who don't do the word have forgotten, like they don't remember what they look like, is because of what the Bible reveals about the natural state of our souls and what the Bible reveals about the natural path that we are on. And the picture the Bible gives us, I'm sorry to tell you, is not flattering, okay? It's not a good picture. The picture the Bible gives us is one where we are hopelessly lost. Sin has left us hopelessly lost, and not in a small or insignificant way. Like the path we're on is going to narrowly miss heaven, and we just need to have our course slightly corrected. No, the Bible tells us that we are lost to the point that our souls have been ruined by sin. Lost to the point that the natural course of our lives and the path that we are on, it actually finds its end not at the gates of heaven, but at the gates of hell. Not a narrow miss, but a complete opposite directive. Dallas Willard he has some really helpful words on this in his book, Renovation of the Heart. This is what he talks about when he talks about the lost soul. This was like helpful to me as I was thinking about this this week. He says, what is a lost soul? Meaning, what is the picture that the mirror of the Word of God reveals about ourselves? What is a lost soul? He says, theologically, the outcome is hell. An most uncomfortable notion. Certainly, if you are lost in any sense, there is little likelihood of you arriving where you want to be. But listen to what he says. He says, the condition of the lostness is not the same as the outcome. We're not lost because we are going to wind up in the wrong place. We are going to wind up in the wrong place because we are lost. What Dallas Willard is saying is that thinking that we can be given heaven and thinking that grace will save us while continuing to walk along our path to hell is a misunderstanding of why people go to hell in the first place. He actually says this later on in the book. He says, we should be sure that the ruined soul is not one who has missed a few more or less important theological points and will flunk a theological examination at the end of life. Hell is not an oops. It is not a slip. One does not miss heaven by a hair, but by constant effort to avoid and escape God. Outer darkness is for the one who everything said wants it, whose entire orientation has slowly and firmly been set against God and therefore against how the universe actually is. 
He says the ruined soul must be willing to hear of and recognize its own ruin before it can find how to enter a different path, the path of eternal life that leads into spiritual formation in Christ-likeness. And then just listen to what he says at the end here, okay? Now, this is a long quote. Stick with me. He says, spiritual formation, meaning just really simply like hearing the words of Jesus, the commands of Jesus, and obeying them so that you actually become like Jesus. Spiritual formation is not something that may or may not be added to the gift of eternal life as an option. Rather, it is the path that the eternal life from above naturally takes. It is the path one must be on if his or hers is to be an eternal kind of life. This is what James is saying. He's saying to be a hearer only and not a doer is to completely forget and miss what the Bible has revealed about who you are and the path you are on. And this is exactly what he's talking about in verse 25. This is what he says right next. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing, right? They will be blessed in their doing, okay? Now, what some people do in this, in this section is they take this and they go, James, like, no, no, no. We're not blessed by doing stuff. We're blessed by our faith. You, you've confused faith and works. Trust me, James has not misunderstood this. And trust me, the Spirit of God who wrote this has not misunderstood this. Maybe you are mistaken. He says, they will be blessed in their doing. James is not talking about earning your salvation by doing good works. He is talking about the error, about missing out on receiving your salvation because you don't follow Jesus. He's not talking about earning your salvation. He's talking about receiving your salvation, right? The grace that Jesus poured out on the cross for sinners wasn't just to forgive them of their sins, but it was actually to so fully and completely remake them that it would be as though they have a new birth. And having a new birth, they actually, wherever they're on in their path in life, they would be able to actually turn around and start following Jesus towards eternal life and away from the path of destruction they've been on their whole life. And this is how James ends, verse 26, okay? Verse 26, this is how he ends. He gets super, super practical. And actually, most of this we're going to save because this is basically setting up all the specific things he's going to talk about in the next weeks, okay? But he just says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless, He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He's he's talking about this idea of hearing the word and he's saying, no, if you want to have a kind of religion that's worth something, you need to actually do it. And so he gives these examples. He's like, the people that are in your midst, these orphans and widows, I don't want you to just talk about how they matter to God. I want you to actually be with them and take care of them. Don't just hear me talk about the image of God in people. Actually go out into the world and actually do something about helping them in their oppression. He's saying, if you don't do that, your religion is worthless. Worthless. And and the reason is because 
This is another picture to think about what Jesus is saying. When Jesus meets people, like when Jesus broke into your life, whoever you are, wherever you're at, he, at some point he broke into your story. And the Bible tells us what we were like and what path we were on. And it says that we were filled with filthiness and rampant wickedness. That was the natural state of our souls. And we were on a path that naturally ended at the same place every time at the gates of hell. This isn't because we believed the wrong thing about Jesus. It's because of who we are. It's because of our natural face. This is the end result of the way we are. And Jesus breaks into our life, and what he does is he gives us grace. Through faith, we connect with Jesus where all of a sudden his grace comes down on our lives, and it saves us. But James is saying that this salvation that Jesus has started is a salvation that is yet to be complete. Because the reason Jesus saves you, the reason that he gives you his grace is so that he can actually take people who are individual sinful people on a path to destruction and actually join them with himself, with Jesus Christ, to be united to him. And so not only would you now have your sins paid for by his blood on the cross, but actually now you would have this kind of relationship where he would join arms with you and he would walk with you away from the path you're on towards the path to eternal life. And what James is saying is, here's a way to deceive yourself. It is to be on the path to destruction, to hear Jesus speak to you about grace and forgiveness, to hear him talk about eternal life, and then to say, yes, Jesus, I want eternal life. I receive your grace. And then when he starts speaking to you about your life, your broken life that ends in destruction, you say, I don't need to actually do that. It's okay. I'm already saved. And what you do is you end up using the doctrine of grace to continue your walk to destruction. And James is saying, Christian, don't do that. Don't be deceived. You are saved by grace. You are not earning anything by turning around and following Jesus. But if you do not turn around and follow him, if you only hear him and you don't do it, you've deceived yourself. My prayer 12 years ago when I heard this and this came crashing into my life was that I would be the kind of person, not just in a moment, but I would be the kind of person every single day who would wake up and I would not just hear the word, but I would do it. This is not something that you just choose to do once. This is discipleship. This is following Jesus, not just once in the past where you choose eternal life, but daily where you choose to walk the path of eternal life, following the one who's given us grace, following the one who's not just our Savior, but who's also our Lord and is beckoning us and calling us further along the path. My prayer is that Doxa Church would be a place like that. That would not be filled with people who hear the word only, but people who do it. Let's pray. Jesus, at the very end of your Sermon on the Mount, the very end, after you've, you spoke so much to us, you taught us so much, you, you said that there would be many people 
on the final day, not a few, not some, but you said there would be many people who would come to you and they would call you Lord. They'd say, Lord, Lord. But then you, you told them that it wasn't people who said, Lord, Lord, who receive eternal life, but it is those who do the will of your Father. Jesus, would you, for those of us who have deceived ourselves, maybe in full or maybe in part, Jesus, would you strip away the deception? God, would you strip away some of these clouds that allow us to call you Savior and refuse your words as authoritative in our life? Jesus, would we follow you? And would Doxa Church be a place where we do not just hear your words, but we do them? Because we have chosen to follow you. And you are not just Savior Jesus. You are Lord and Savior Jesus. And when we follow you, when we do these things, we will be blessed. Because you are not just putting a law on us, but you've given us the law of liberty that is calling us and leading us home. In your name, amen.